Can you hear me? Good morning, Highland. Uh, if you wouldn't mind having a seat. Before we read our scripture this morning, I just want to tell you why we're doing this. Uh, why we're having this uh, prayer garden here this morning. And it's not just because Miss Suzetta is out of town. Um, it is because Highland thinks children are so important and their presence among us is so valuable that we wanted to try an experiment. So the experiment's going to go something like this. Um, hypothesis, what if we changed the very shape of our church so that children can not only participate, but can participate in ways that are authentic to them and bodies that are sometimes a little busier than adult bodies. And so that's what we're trying. We, we've got them here uh, at either side of the stage. And what we just want to do is we just want to say, uh, children, you are welcome. And uh, you are here as full participants of this body. And we're glad you're here. And we want to know if this works for you because we think that your presence is so important. So children, what I want you to do is I want you to listen to the story, like Mr. Jeff was saying, and just draw anything that the story makes you think of or that the love of God makes you think of. Maybe it's a really, really high sky because you see that the love of God is as big as the earth is from the sky. But whatever you want to draw, as you hear the story and as my friend Alan's about to read, we are glad you are here. Alan, whenever you're ready. David asked, is there, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and he was summoned to David. The king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, at your service. The king said, is there anyone remaining of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? Ziba said to the king, there remains a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Machir, son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and bowed to give him honor. David said, Mephibosheth. He answered, I am your servant. David said to him, do not be afraid, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore you all the land of your grandfather Saul, and you yourself shall eat at my table always. He bowed low to give him honor and said, What is your servant that you shall look upon a dead dog such as I? Then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, All that belong to Saul and all to his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons... And your servant shall till the land for him, and shall bring in the produce, so that your master's grandson may have food to eat. But your master's grandson, Mephibosheth, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so that your servant will do. Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. The word of God. Let's give Alan a hand for saying Mephibosheth so many times. I uh, threw a hard one at him, and he hit it out of the park. Way to go, Alan. Uh, I just, before we start, I want to say, I, I don't know if you can hear in the background, but already I'm, I'm loving the sounds of our children with us. Our story today starts with David sitting alone 
at a table in his palace in Jerusalem. We don't know a lot about David's palace in Jerusalem, but we do know it wasn't always his. It wasn't long ago, Israel was in a power vacuum after Saul's death. Quite a few people had a rightful claim to Saul's throne before David, who happened to be God's anointed. Through a series of bloody events, all those who have a claim to the throne end up killing each other. David is able to keep his hands free of blood, but once they're gone, David unifies the divided kingdom and under his leadership, and he begins a march on Jerusalem. When he arrives to Jerusalem, the Jebusites look at his army and they mock them and they say, your army is so weak. We are going to defend this city here today with our blind and our lame because the ancient Jebusites weren't very sensitive to people with disabilities. And so David, then he sends his men uh, up the cistern of the city and they get on the inside and they attack and they conquer Jerusalem. And from that day forward, as a way of mocking the Jebusites who mocked them, the ancient Israelites developed a saying that went something like, as long as King David and his palace, the blind and the lame will never be there because the ancient Israelites also weren't super sensitive to people with disabilities. And I don't want to give any validity to that old notion, but it is important this morning that we understand it from an ancient setting, from an ancient perspective, one that lives or dies every year based on the amount of crop that is brought in. There is an equation in ancient societies that develop that depend on agriculture every year. It might go something like bodies that are able to work in the field minus mouths to feed equals our family's well-being. And if you have someone living in your house that has a body that can't work but needs to be fed, it is a huge strain on an ancient family. Once so, once such, such a strain that there becomes this attitude that a disabled person is a curse on their house. This might be why many years later, Jesus gets a question that we probably would think is ridiculous now. The ancient scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they come to Jesus and they bring to him a man who was born lame and they said, who sinned, this man or his parents? Because the assumption was this is so difficult. We depend so much on the crop we can bring in. We live from month to month and season to season so much that this person must have sinned. God would never do that to a person. Being a disabled becomes a sign of weakness and shame on an entire family. And so David sits alone in his newly acquired palace in a culture that thinks disabled people are worthy of shame and in a culture that where there is a popular saying that goes like, as long as David is king, the blind and the lame will never enter his palace. And he sits there in his palace alone at a table and it smells like cedar. Now I'm going to turn to our, to our children here. Children, have you ever smelled cedar? Has anyone ever smelled what cedar smells like? You have? What does cedar smell like? It smells like a, close to like a flower. Close to like a flower, yeah, yeah. Anyone else? What does cedar smell like? Okay, when I read about cedar, because I didn't quite know how to describe it, somebody said it smells sweet and spicy. And and I don't know if uh, children know this, but sometimes adults will put uh, balls of cedar in their stinky sock drawers uh, because cedar smells so good 
that it can even make your dad's socks uh, not smell so bad. So cedar is this overwhelming power, and we don't know why. Maybe the ancient Jebusites did not build the palace very well, but when David becomes king, he brings in planks of cedar to hold up the walls and the ceiling. And as David sits alone in his palace at this table, it is smelling sweet and spicy of cedar. And he asks himself a question. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul to whom I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? And like so much else in David's life, this story that we are in today is about David and Meshibosheth and some other characters. But really, really, this story today is about David and Jonathan. Jonathan seems to always be on David's mind. David and Jonathan love each other as much as two people possibly can. This love between them, this life-giving energy that flows between them, it motivates them to commit a covenant to each other where they essentially say, I will live my life for you and towards you until I take my last breath. In fact, in order to describe how deeply these two love each other, I need to break a rule this morning. I was told uh, that uh, when you're preaching, people don't care so much about the Hebrew and the Greek meanings of words nearly as much as preachers do. So don't do, don't do a word study like in the middle of a sermon. I'm going to break that rule because there's a word that is really, really important. I'm going to, again, I'm going to turn to the children. Children, you're going to help me say this word a couple times, okay? Because you guys might know this word, but the word is hesed. Can, can we say hesed? Can you guys say hesed? Hesed. hesed. That was awesome. Yep. Hesed. Hesed is a Hebrew word that can be translated steadfast love, loving kindness, mercy, goodness, faithfulness. And if you want to get like a little snotty with it and impress your friends, you can also say that in Hebrew, there's actually two H consonants. This is the hard H. And so kids, you don't just say hesed, you, have, you say chesed. Can you say chesed? Chesed. If you're not coughing something up from deep down inside of you, you're not saying it right. So say chesed. Good. Highland, say chesed. Okay, I need you to get excited about chesed today. Because this is not just a story about David and Mephibosheth. It is also a story about David and Jonathan and chesed. It's hard to correctly translate chesed. There are some words in some cultures that are so meaningful to that culture, you can't just do a one-to-one uh, uh, translation. There's a Spanish word for run. I don't know what it is right now, but in English we would say it's just run, and that's easy. But you can't do that with hesed because it means too much. Hesed, loving kindness, the commitment to love someone and live your life for them and to never drop that commitment is so essential to the Israelite culture that to translate hesed is to translate all of Israel's values and core ethics. They live and they die on hesed. And so this story today is about David and hesed and his love of Jonathan. It's always mercy towards someone else. It's faithfulness to someone else. It's loving kindness towards a loved one. It is always a word that exists inside of relationship. It's feeling so strongly towards another person, so zealous towards the promises you've made to them that you will live your whole life towards them. I will choose to live my life for another, and those feelings and those actions 
space in between the love for you and another person. That is hesed. And that's what our story is about today. So Highland, I need you to get excited about it. Because when David asks his question of Jonathan, is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I might show kindness towards for Jonathan's sake? He doesn't say kindness, he says hesed. Is there anyone left in the house of Saul I might show hesed towards for Jonathan's sake? Hesed changes our stories. It upends our lives. Our story begins with David sitting alone in his palace at an empty table, and he is thinking of Jonathan when he asks the question. David remembers the love oath that he made to Jonathan. He remembers telling him, essentially, I love you so much, all of my life efforts will be lived towards you. David is at the pinnacle of his power as a king. He has just unified the divided kingdom. He has restored Jerusalem. He has recaptured the Ark of the Covenant and brought it back to Jerusalem. And he sits alone at a table in his palace. And he thinks of Jonathan. To show hesed to Saul's descendants, even though even though Saul did everything he could to get rid of David and kill David, to show Hesed to Saul is to show Hesed to Jonathan. Because Saul is Jonathan's father and Hesed applies to everyone in your house. So David sits alone and he thinks of how he can show Hesed to Saul for Jonathan's sake. Saul's line has been so thoroughly decimated, decimated by the wars after his death that there is only one person left, and it is his servant, Ziba. Ziba is brought in, and David asks him his question at his empty table. Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I might show kindness or hesed towards for the sake of Jonathan? Ziba might have a confused look on his face. He might kind of paw at the ground and wonder, should I answer this? It's like he almost doesn't really understand the question. Uh, he says, there's one... There is a son of Jonathan, but my Lord, he is crippled in both feet. David doesn't laugh. He isn't shocked at the shame of this. He doesn't gasp at the news. He just says, go get him. Ziba has already told us one reason why this son of Jonathan is full of shame, but there's more. I don't know if you caught it also, but the narrator before we can end this story, the narrator feels like they need to mention it again. Twice, once from Ziba and once from our neighbor, we are reminded that the son of Jonathan is lame in both feet. They are like uncomfortably uncomfortable with Mephibosheth's shame. And they just can't seem to stop mentioning it. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, is a problem though for more reason than just his two lame feet. He became lame, like Dan was telling us, when he was just five years old. And in the power vacuum of Saul's and Jonathan's death, his nurse picked him up and flee, fled. And in the midst of the chaos fell and she broke both of his feet and we presume that they never healed. So the ancients might say, who sinned? Who caused this lameness, this shame on Mephibosheth? Him or his parents? And who exactly are Mephibosheth's parents? We're told already that it's the son of Jonathan. But later we learn that it's also his mother is Rizpah. 
Rizpah, if it's the same woman, was a concubine of Saul. So not only does Mephibosheth live all his days with everyone seeing right away that he is lame in both feet, but his father is Jonathan and his mother is his grandfather's concubine. Even for ancient standards, that's shameful. Then there's Mephibosheth's name. It probably isn't even Mephibosheth. <laughs> Mephibosheth, it literally means, like Dan said, from the mouth of shame. But it was probably changed to Mephibosheth from the name Marib Baal. Why? I don't know. Maybe to see how many times I can mispronounce it today. But it was changed from Marib Baal probably because Baal is the ancient Canaanite deity. The man was named worshiper of Baal. And then when he was five, he was dropped and he was broken and he couldn't walk the rest of his life. And then they changed his name to mouth of shame. David sends Ziba to go find perhaps the most shame filled person in all of ancient Israel. And ancient Israel has a hard time seeing past people's shame. But they're not the only ones. Sometimes we have perfected the art of noticing shame in another. Brene Brown has reached an unprecedented level of popularity as a sociological researcher. And she has uh, largely centered her work around the idea of shame. She says that shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. She also says that this is nearly universal. So what that means is while we could go around the room and ask every single person in this room, try to figure out if we have one shared common experience, we would probably have a hard time finding something that we all have in common. But if I went around the room and I said to each and every one of us, tell me about your shame, we could probably all come up with a story or two because shame tends to be universal. I don't know about you, but when I begin thinking about my shame, my, my body goes quickly from my thought center to my feelings. It doesn't take me long to feel shame. I'm afraid that if you knew me, if you really knew me, you wouldn't want me. And if we can find people to whom we can share those deep things, of who we are and why we're ashamed. We tend to speak about our shame in almost reverent tones. It's so close to who we are and our identities. But if you can find somebody, if you can find somebody you can speak to and they can say to you, you are still worthy of love and belonging. And it's incredibly liberating because the thing is, the reason why shame is so close to who we are is because to name our shame stories is for me to tell you why exactly I believe I am unworthy of your love and belonging. It is to open up the most vulnerable parts of ourselves and it is to say why I believe I am unworthy of my most basic human needs, love and belonging. And if you can find somebody who can liberate from you from that, Please do. But the problem is when we don't, we tend to turn our shame outward. We don't speak about people with physical disabilities with shame anymore. But we used to. 
We might be tempted to consider ourselves far more advanced than the ancient Israelites and their concepts of who deserves our shame. That is, who has become so unworthy of our table presence by the unwritten rules of our social orders that they don't get invited anymore. We're pretty good at noticing why people are other or different. Recently, we tend to politicize and so dehumanize the following people, asylum seekers and refugees, gay, lesbian, transgender, bisexual, and queer folks, black people, brown people, police officers, evangelicals, liberals, Republicans, and even children. Precious children have been shamed and politicized And even when they have been taken from their parents' arms, even when their lives have been taken from them, we look around and say, but sir, they are lame in both feet. They are lame in both feet. And so shameful. We might think we are more socially advanced than the ancient Israelites, but lately, I don't know. We are pretty good at seeing shame. We are gridlocked because of our ability to see shame. We, like the ancient Israelites, are certain of who should never be invited to the king's table. But thank God, and good for us, the king doesn't laugh when he hears of the child's disability. He doesn't scoff when he learns that the child who is a political refugee is lame in both feet. He just says, go get him and bring him to my table. We may not ever even know their names, but our king, our king calls for them. David sits at an empty table in a palace that smells like cedar that he has taken from the Jebusites. And he tells Ziba, go get the son of Jonathan. He isn't slowed one bit upon hearing Jonathan's son's shame because David's love for Jonathan sees past shame. Mephibosheth's name, shame itself, isn't even spoken until he arrives before David in the empty table and he falls down on his face and the separation of power and the separation of honor and shame between the two men could never be greater. Then David, the king, says to the lame and the shameful, Mephibosheth, he speaks his name. I am your servant. Do not be afraid, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will show you hesed for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will store you to all the land, or store to you all the land of your grandfather, Saul, and you yourself shall eat at my table always. What am I to do? Who, what am I that you would deal with a dead dog like me? And that's it. David doesn't even answer the question. He doesn't tell Mephibosheth why he shouldn't be ashamed. He doesn't even tell him of his inherent worth as a human being and a child of God. I want David to take this opportunity to be the Bible's first humanitarian. I want him to take this question and tell Mephibosheth that he's not a dead dog, 
and that his wounds don't make him any less of a human being than anybody else. I want David to adopt all the disabled and blind children in Israel and say to Israel, this palace will have blind and lame people because they're no better or worse than you. But he doesn't because that's not what the story is about. It's about David and his love for Jonathan until his dying day. David made a promise to someone he loves deeply and because of Hesed, he will honor it. Mephibosheth is bowing now, his face on the ground before David with a question that hangs in the air and will go unanswered. But he will sit at the king's table for the rest of his life because David loves Jonathan and love sees past shame. David says nothing to Mephibosheth's shame question, but I imagine him looking at Mephibosheth, waiting till he looks up from the ground and meeting him eye to eye and maybe just motioning to an open spot at the empty table. The first person we know about sitting at the table of David is he who the culture says is most shamed. David calls Ziba back and he instructs him that Mephibosheth will not only sit at his table for the rest of his life, but so will his children. Ziba will be his servant and every remaining field that belonged to Saul now belongs to Mephibosheth. And he will eat from the king's table for the rest of his life. Because David loves Jonathan and because love sees past shame. Sometimes it's hard for me not to get anxious about the way our culture has so perfected shaming others. Our country and political climate have become so unsafe for so many people. And I too have been guilty at times of looking on another and saying, but he's lame in both feet. I feel deeply responsible that we have often not kept shame out of our churches and that we still find ourselves caught in the trap of determining who is worthy of sitting at the Lord's table with us. We have often forgotten that we are not the host of the king's table and that God's love is often mysterious, disorderly, and even offensive to those of us who are raised by the rules of how to avoid shame. God sees our shame, but God's love sees past our shame and not just ours but there's two. We cannot control God's love. A long time ago, God made a covenant with his people and God said, I will love you forever. And David felt that love so much so that one day he wrote the words, the love of God is as big as the earth is from the sky for those who fear and love God. And God has been acting out Hesed love towards God's people ever since. Jonathan and David made a covenant to each other. He said, we will live our lives for our love for each other. And that Hesed love is a commitment that we will act upon for the rest of our lives. It is a commitment that God makes to God's people. God loves us as much as David and Jonathan love each other. And it's the love that asks, who's left that we might show Hesed kindness towards? And go get them. 
bring them to the king's table. The king's table is set for some pretty strange people, even you and me. It's true our society is just as good at seeing people's shame as the ancient Israelites, and it's time for the church to be different. Because even in the face of the most extreme shame-fueled violence, the church has always been about its Hesed commitment to God. God's people must begin seeing past shame. And when I'm tempted to despair and believe that we are not going to get past our cultural commitment to shame, I am reminded of the words of Myra Thompson. They cut through the shame straight towards my heart. Myra Thompson had a chance to shame someone as profoundly and holy as anyone could ever shame someone else that day in the courtroom when she addressed Dylan Roof. Dylan Roof is the white supremacist who thought being a black person was shameful, unworthy of love and belonging. He took the lives of nine members of the Emmanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church in downtown Charleston, South Carolina. And one of those lives that he took was a woman named DePayne Middleton Doctor, Myra Thompson's sister. At Roof's arraignment, the judge allowed the family members to address Roof. Myra Thompson said this, I acknowledge that I am very angry. But one thing DePayne always enjoyed in our family is that she taught me that we are the house that love built. We have no room for hating, so we have to forgive. And so I pray God on your soul. We are the house that love built. We are the house of Hesed kindness. And even when it feels like we can't overcome the world's shame, we are reminded that the commitment to our love for each other and to our king sees past any shame. It is overcoming. It upends our stories and it always invites to the open seat at the table. And that is called Hesed. Church, we are the family that love built. Hesed is our word spoken over us by the word at the beginning. When we live out Hesed love, shame is driven from our walls and we hear ourselves, our own voices ask, is there still anyone left to whom we can show kindness for Jesus' sake? Church, it's time we get them. It's time we go get those that are called shameful because they belong at the table of our king, because love sees past shame.